but yeah, my, my claim is if you want to understand Smith's political thought, it's no good going to his work of moral philosophy. You need to go to his work of history and, and political economy. That's where you'll find his political thought. Listener, welcome to another instalment of New Work in Intellectual History, produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm your host of this episode, Robin Mills, and we're delighted to be joined by Dr Paul Sagar, King's College London. Hello, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, Robin. Right, Paul is Senior Lecturer in Political Theory at KCL. He was the recipient in 2020 of the British and Irish Association for Political Theory's Early Career Award for Outstanding Contributions to Research and Teaching, which is nice. <laughs> and the author of The Opinion of Mankind, uh, Sociability in the State from Hobbes to Smith, that was published by Princeton University Press in 2018. And now he has another book literally out, well, out last week, uh, also by, uh, published by Princeton, entitled Adam Smith Reconsidered, History, Liberty and the Foundations of Modern Politics. And it is this book that we're going to be discussing with Paul today. So um, I really, really enjoyed reading this. I possibly enjoyed reading it more because I'm not, I have no skin in the game because it's quite an iconoclastic book with quite a bit to be iconoclastic about. So I, before we get into um, some of the you know, really sort of transformative or radical things you were arguing about, Smith, uh, what prompted you, I don't even guess the answer to this question, given how I've trailed it, but what prompted you to write the book? Well, in a way, it was finishing the first book and realizing that there was an awful lot more to say about Adam Smith had left unsaid. So this is very much a sequel to uh, The Opinion of Mankind, which was a book which attempted to say that in particular, David Hume and Adam Smith have a powerful way of theorizing politics. And in particular, the origins and functionings and nature of the modern state, which has lain underappreciated for a long time, and in particular in recent history of political thought work, lain under the shadow of um, more influential approaches such as the fictional state theory of Thomas Hobbes or something like Rousseau's approach to the social contract. And what I wanted to say is that there's a neglected way of thinking about these kinds of issues um, and Hume and Smith embody that. And in particular, it's their emphasis on moral psychology, ordinary human opinion, and the way that politics is driven through incentives and conflict, and is not best theorized through various idealized philosophical abstractions, but by going to the source, what people really think, and in particular, why they think that given their histories. So that was where I got to by the end of The Opinion of Mankind. And, and as I was wrapping that up, and there's a long chapter on Adam Smith in that book, I realized, you know, I really think a lot of what people have written about Smith isn't right. Um, I think that the scholarship just is missing something here. And it took me a while to work out what it was. And, and initially, I hadn't planned to write a book on Smith, but I just planned to write a, a paper or two. But a paper became, oh, well, hang on a minute, I, I've told that story, but really, there's a deeper story to tell here. And eventually, it ended up becoming a full-scale book. And part of the ambition was this idea that not only is Smith part of a tradition that's been sort of underappreciated for its power and its originality, but Smith himself has been underappreciated for his power and his originality, particularly as a political thinker. So we're all relatively familiar with the idea of Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, because as the sort of 
it's a kind of fairy tale, to be honest, goes. He wrote this book called The Wealth of Nations and discovered the economic theory by theorizing markets and this thing, the invisible hand. And then later, this guy, David Ricardo, uh, sort of formalized it a bit. And then eventually we had the development of classical economic theory. And you know, that eventually grows into what we call modern economics. And so everybody is more or less familiar with that story. Um, and that story has been qualified and, and pushed back on by various people for the last 30 or so years at least. But the dominant way of pushing back against that story has been to tell one about Smith, the moral philosopher. Smith, the guy who also wrote this other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And that's a complex, sophisticated contribution to enlightenment moral philosophy, moral psychology. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but the way that Smith was framed in political terms, and as not just the economist Adam Smith, has often been to say he was really interested in other debates that other 18th century figures were having about how something called commercial society had emerged by the 18th century and why it had new problems and new predicaments that needed to be faced down. And in particular here, the interlocutor is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau's challenge in the second discourse that modern states are sites of domination, corruption, moral degradation, and effectively that everything went wrong, you know, several thousand years ago when we left an advanced stage of the state of nature. And the idea in more recent scholarship has been that Smith is a, is a similar kind of thinker. He disagrees with Rousseau's extreme conclusions, but he's worried about the same kinds of things as Rousseau. And, and although he ends up trying to sort of defend modern quote unquote commercial society, he, he appreciates the, the, uh, the, the difficulties of doing so because of its moral predicaments. And that's been the predominant kind of pushback um, on Smith scholarship. I just want to interject that also I'd always just to jump forward uh, into the Russo stuff too early um so you say sort of uh, some of the prominent sort of framing concepts of Smith at the moment who has been to sort of view him as a, a commentator on or a theorist of commercial society what's wrong so this is sort of the, the first chapter uh, what's wrong with describing Smith as a four stages theorist of society in which the final stage of development is commercial society as taken to be epitomized by mid 18th century European states. Because that's, uh, I, I wasn't gonna mention this, there's a, there's a collection put together by UNESCO in the mid nineties about the history of humanity, like a big 10 volume. This is, the, this is everything we know about the history of humanity. And there's a chapter in there about European social theory in the early modern period. And the four stages theory is taken to be one of the great achievements of the European Enlightenment. Um, you have something different to say about... Now that's, that's amazing, because I did not actually know that about UNESCO. That's fascinating. That's, I might have to go and look into that. Okay, so the reason this, this idea of the four stages theory in commercial society is so important to my book is, is basically because I wanted to push back against this moralized Smith, Smith the moral philosopher who's upset by Rousseau and isn't just an economist, he cares about morality too. And, and the, the, one of the first thing that alerted to me that something's wrong with the story is precisely this idea of the four stages theory and Smith's theory of commercial society. And this ended up being the first chapter of the book, but it was also really something that I'd noticed fairly early on. It took me a while to work out that made me think the standard readings are not helpful and not correct here. And, and what I aim to do is to develop a more political Smith, right? So to go and answer your question about the four stages theory. So 
One thing that the old economist Smith and the moral philosopher Smith uh, approaches share in common is exactly this idea that Smith thought that societies progressed through discrete stages of economic development. So in the first stage, you've got hunter-gathering. In the second, you've got shepherding societies, so where people live off pastoral means and livestock. In the third, they realize that it's more efficient to produce agriculture and to live from the land through arable uh, farming and then the final one is commercial society where people start to trade and everyone as he puts it in a famous quote lives by exchange and it's long been supposed that although smith realized that there were some sort of deviations from this in practice that he nonetheless thought that this was effectively where human societies could be positioned at any sort of point along um, their development so in the very, very distant past, everyone was hunter-gatherer. In some parts of for his understanding of the modern world, you know, in, in perhaps in North America or in some distant parts of Africa, they would maybe not still be hunter-gatherers. Other parts of the world, they were shepherds, so the Mongol plains and, and for thousands of years, uh, the, the hordes of Genghis Khan and so on. Um, and then there would be places like perhaps China, where they're still stuck in an agricultural stage. But modern Europe has ascended to the final stage of economic development, which is commercial society, where everyone lives from exchanging. You know, people don't grow their own food um, directly. They don't feed themselves from the land or their own animals. They do a work, they, they do work, they get a wage in exchange, and they use that wage to buy food and other things, right? And that's the sort of standard picture. And my view that I've come to, and that sort of is the foundational move in the book, is to say that this is completely wrong. <laughs> um, that Smith does not think that human society progresses in this linear stadial manner at all. In fact, his central claim is that human, human societies do not progress stadially. Okay? So this is going to sound weird to anybody who has uh, encountered some Smith studies or the authors of that UNESCO report, because you know, apparently this is one of the greatest contributions to the European Enlightenment. Okay, so to, to my contention is two sides to it. The first is that when Smith talks about stadial theory, he's running what we would call an economic thought experiment. This is taken from his lectures, not from his published work. The four stages theory is taken from student notes. So these are things he's telling his students. And the parts of the lectures that they're taking in are not the parts about real historical development. They're the parts where he's explaining some basic concepts of economic theory. And one thing that Smith wants to say is the form of government that you have is, sort, is very heavily determined, well, maybe not determined, but heav heavily influenced by the kind of economic organization that you have. And so he wants to illustrate that in very, very primitive economic organizations, you can have very, very primitive, potentially even not even really present forms of government. And, and as economic advancement increases, you get more advanced forms of government. And so he has this, this thought experiment of imagine a group of people isolated on a desert island. This is his, this is, these are his parameters, right? Initially, they might just forage and, and survive off the you know, land. Then they would learn to trap the local animals and they would, you know, get into pasturage. Then they would realize that, you know, as their population grew, it was much more sustainable to do farming as well as animal rearing. And then finally, they would start trading with each other and eventually with other neighboring islands, right? And so the important thing about this thought experiment is it's totally artificial for multiple reasons. One, the, 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 there's just one group of people on this island, right? So there's no internal warfare on the island. And even more crucially, there's no external warfare either. Um, so these people are allowed to develop in what Smith called the natural, and we would call it the economically logical manner. And Smith's entire point when he turns, I think, his entire point when he turns to the real historical development of human civilizations is that it never 
happens like that. And the reason it never happens like that is because of war. Because human communities have to exist in competition with other human communities. And what really happens is as soon as one group starts to become a little bit wealthy or do a little bit better, another like powerful neighboring group realizes it can get rich quick by plundering them. And Smith thinks that the vast majority of human history has been spent in a development trap where what he calls shepherding societies, by which he doesn't mean sort of bow peep with, you know, a couple of goats. He means incredibly fearsome, militarily advanced, vicious, nomadic tribes who sweep into territories, murder all the men, enslave all the women and take all the livestock. And Smith's view is that for thousands of years, that was where human history got stuck. It got stuck in the quote unquote second stage because of international war. How did it get out of there? Well, it's a complex story and it happens in different ways in different parts of the world. But for example, in ancient Athens um, or ancient Greece more generally, uh, some of these nomadic tribesmen moved down into the Attican Peninsula. They found that they were protected from uh, by large mountains from horse-borne raiders. And the only threat came from the sea, from pirates. So they gathered themselves behind walls and created the first walled city-states. But crucially in Smith's story there, they didn't go from shepherding to agriculture to commerce. They went from shepherding to commerce and agriculture simultaneously because they realized they could trade through their both through rivers, but in particular via the sea. And they were both trading with other states as well as internally to their own populations. So that's the ancient story. The modern story is an even more complex one in Europe about the collapse of feudalism, which doesn't fit anywhere in Smith's stages. What is feudalism? It's not an agricultural society, strictly. It's not a commercial society. So these are um, so Smith's actual historical story is that it never happens like that in practice. That trade is not the engine of historical development. War is, and and being trapped over in development bottleneck for thousands of years is the human norm. Why do you think um, the four stages model has become so central to Smith's scholarship? Because everything you've said is a very persuasive um, telling of what Smith is actually doing. Uh, why the why the four stages at the centre of so yeah? Why has it been at the centre so much? I often think it's sort of emblematic or it acts as a placeholder to cover the fact that things are actually really really complicated with Smith. Right. And you're and if you're trying to summarise him, you it's an easy thing to do to go actually I'll just put this in here as opposed to having to recount uh, yeah, some really subtle historical analysis. Yeah, so I mean, what you've said there, I think is, is very instructive because that's what I take it he was doing with his students, right? That's why the four stages model is in the lectures, right? Because it's a placeholder, it's a way of illustrating some basic points. Why has it become such a staple of Smith scholarship when it seems to me that it's, it's not something that he thinks really happens in the real world. It's a sort of simplified economic model. One reason is that Douglas Stewart, who gave the valedictory lecture when Smith died in, I think, 1793, published this very famous um, sort of biography of Smith. And he's the first person to, to attribute a four stages theory to Smith as um, a stage or theorist. So there's partly that. Um, people have taken Stewart and sort of it's it sort of became a fixed point quite early. Stages theories were very common in the 18th century. Uh, Smith could rely on his readers being relatively familiar with the three stages theory, hunting, then shepherding, then agriculture. In fact, he makes very basic use of a three stages theory in the wealth of nations. Um, and I've got some technical things to say, which we won't go into here um, in the book about why that's not a four stages theory. Um, and I think that the point you've made there about it being a simplifying way of, of moving quickly through his thought is really the culprit here. Because if you can just, if you can turn Smith into a four stages theorist, not only do you make a lot of complex nuanced historical stuff 
collapse into a, a straightforward framework. You also can treat Smith as a theorist of economic development who sees humanity on a kind of upward linear progress. Because that we, what we also need to talk about here is this label commercial society, which we've used several times and is the second part of what I think is a major misreading of the stages theory. So the standard story is that the fourth stage of the stages theory is this thing, commercial society. And I think that's wrong. I think if you actually go back to the, what he says in the four stages theory is that the fourth stage is something else. It's what he calls a commercial age. And this isn't a subtle but important distinction for Smith. A commercial age, it refers to this thought experiment, the economic model where, pe where, where people's no longer um, simply uh, growing crops internally and living some subsistence farming, but they're trading with each other and with other, and then in turn with other states, right? So that's the kind of logical endpoint of economic progress in a, in a sort of, non-political context where there's no war messing everything up when smith talks about commercial society i think he's talking about something different um, and it's not the end point of the four stages theory commercial society for smith is a very very specific technical phrase and it is goes back to this this specific thing he says about every man being a, something like a merchant and living from exchange and that's this idea that we don't grow our own potatoes we don't slaughter our own pigs anymore we go do some work, earn a wage, exchange that wage for subsistence, and then you know, in developed economies for much more than subsistence for various luxury items. So a commercial society is not, the, is not part of the stage theory. It's a claim about how most people in a given situation secure subsistence and hopefully more than just subsistence. And the crucial thing about this label, label commercial society is it can apply many, many different times in many, many different places. Right? So I think Smith thinks Athens, ancient Athens was a commercial society, ancient Rome was a commercial society. China, for most of its historical development, has been a commercial society and was a commercial society thousands of years before anywhere in the West was. And then for thousands of years after when we were suffering through the Dark Ages. And of course, modern Europe is a commercial society. The defining feature here being that in these societies, people live from exchange. They don't create their they grow and eat their um grow and rear their own food directly there's but not only is that not 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 part of the stages theory what's crucial about this is that the politics of commercial society is radically underdeterminate from smith's point of view right so it doesn't matter sorry it's not enough to say oh this is a commercial society you need to know what kind of commercial society because the kind of politics that worked and made sense in Athens, the kinds of politics that function in Rome, the kinds of politics that function in China, the kinds of politics that function in modern Britain, the kind of politics that function in modern France, modern here being 18th century, um, are all radically different, Smith thinks. And so it's no good just to say, oh, it's a commercial society. Okay, it's a commercial society. That means we know certain things about its level of economic development, but we know nothing about its politics. We know nothing about the desirability of its politics. So crucial for Smith, I think, is that the stages theory can't help you with that because the stages theory can't tell you anything about the real historical politics of any of these kinds of societies because it's just a thought experiment. And neither can the underdescribed label of commercial society. That just gives you a very broad indication of the overall level of economic development, but by itself is completely indeterminate about either the nature of the politics of this society or the quality of the politics of this society. Fantastic. <clears throat> I'm just thinking of, what, can you uh, contrast that with what, I'm just thinking like Chris, you know, I've um, worked with Chris Berry a bit and, uh, you know, have the, the idea of commercial society in the Scottish Enlightenment. You're, you're very respectful and sort of being one of the, one of the sort of um, very nice 
things about this book, or enjoyable things, there is an ongoing conversation, a very, you know, very detailed, precise conversation all the time you're having in the footnotes. Very, you know, respectful, but then challenging people when you think they're wrong, and then um, praising them when you think, when you, you know, when, when you're agreeing with them. Um, but what people like uh, Chris, what is, what are they saying commercial society is? And, you know, how do, what's the critique of what they're doing? I mean, can you develop the critique at all? Yeah, so, so I've learned an enormous amount from Chris Berry's work on the Scots um, and his work on Smith in particular. And, and we'll probably go on to talk about my views on Smith and, and Liberty, which, you know, I, I think Chris is my closest interlocutor um, in developing those thoughts there. Um, and I suppose what I want to push back on with Chris's reading of the four stages theory is the idea that commercial society is the end point of the four stages, that the four stages really are followed, no, imperfectly, but more or less, is how European modernity arrived. And that European modernity is therefore the end point of a upward trajectory of primarily economic development. Um, and I want to say that's not how it is for Smith. European modernity is a complete historical accident that didn't follow anything like what pure economic theory predicted it should have um, and that in particular the long night of feudal darkness the thousands of years where people were being oppressed by local barons without freedom living in economic destitution that was not a third stage of a model called agricultural society that was something totally outside the remit of pure economic theory because it was it was a result of the collapse of rome the um the peculiar economic interactions between the town and the countryside that happened in 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 those periods and the the very very difficult problem of dealing with human domination and the fact that one of the, the absolute constants of Smith's thought is if the rich and powerful are not controlled they will use their wealth and power to exploit dominate and subjugate absolutely everybody around them and the result won't be markets the result won't be economic prosperity it won't be freedom it will be backwardness poverty and destitution for ordinary people whilst a tiny minority extract everything that they can from them. We'll come back to some of that and we talk, we talk about the final chapter. Um, let's go, you've hinted at this already. Uh, I think you're critical of attempts to frame Smith as part of the neo-Roman or Republican tradition uh, of political thought associated with Philip Pettit and Quentin Skinner. I guess that may, most of our listeners will be familiar with that tradition, but maybe you could um, yeah. just uh, remind us of some of the key points of it. And then why you don't think that Smith should be included? Sure. So. Pettit and Skinner have put forward some of the most important influential um, conceptual sort of innovations in contemporary political theory of the last 30 or 40 years. And they've done it most impressively by, by also making a historical intervention. And the idea, um, and it was pioneered between by both of them over a number of years, and it's always a little tricky to be quite clear as to who made exactly which innovation when. Um, but but the, the philosophical claim is primarily originated with Pettit, was then picked up and endorsed by Skinner, is that to be free, one needs to be free from arbitrary interference, right? So it's no good simply not being interfered with. It's no good simply having uh, nobody else tell you what to do or directly um, interfere with your life, because the mere possibility that they could might itself be enough to render you unfree. So the classic example of this is, let's say you're a slave with an extremely benevolent master who actually never controls your life and you know allows you to pretty much live as if you you know never had a master at all however the fact that because that person is your master and could tomorrow 
suddenly change their mind and impose arbitrary restrictions on you and interfere with your life, that means you are not free. Even though you're not actually experiencing any interference, you're still unfree. Um, and I actually think that there's, 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 there's context in which it's an extremely plausible claim. Um, I'm not one of these people who thinks that that's just a confusion in philosophy. I think it's a plausible understanding of freedom. Now, what, what the flip side of this is that Skinner and Pettit, and this is more Skinner's historical work, um, sort of building on Pettit's philosophical reconceptualization, is that this was a predominant way of thinking in politics uh, for much of human history, in particular associated with Renaissance political thought and in particular with Machiavelli although there are some ways of potentially tracing it back much further and Quentin Skinner famously suggested that it's a this is a neo-Roman understanding that Romans understood freedom in terms of not just not being interfered with but being protected from the ability of anybody else to interfere with you and therefore it's very closely associated with republican political thought the idea that you must not only be self-governing you know, you must give the laws that you live under to, to yourself, otherwise, you know, you're potentially someone else's slave, but you must also be militarily independent and robust, because otherwise you might be conquered and subjected to despotism from outside by other military threats. So an aggressive military republicanism of a citizen of self-rulership has been the historical site of this understanding of freedom. Now, Skinner and Pettit don't particularly like the military uh, quasi-fascist imperialist implications of this view, but they very much like the idea that liberalism as a scheme of politics, which simply means if you're not being interfered with, you're free, they think it falls short in various ways. And they've suggested that modern politics is impoverished because of this, and we should go back and recap the Republican understanding of freedom as non-domination uh, as a way of improving contemporary political theory of, of sort of re-grasping lost traditions which were um, more healthy, if you like, as, as this understanding of freedom. So that's the, the background view there. That's not Smith. <laughs> exactly. Right. So the, the claim I want to make in this book is Smith is also a theorist of non-domination. Smith also thinks that freedom is lost when somebody else can arbitrarily interfere with you, when, when, when you are not secure in your person or your possessions, because at any moment someone could come and take that away from you, then you are not free. And Smith is intimately concerned with domination. He's a vocal and consistent uh, opponent of slavery. He condemns slavery in all its forms. He, in fact, thinks that the ancient republics were illegitimate. And one reason we should never attempt to bring back that form of politics is because it was predicated on tens of thousands of people being kept in bondage. You know, um, and he just thought that was abhorrent. He was under no illusions that slavery was a monstrosity. In both its ancient and modern guises, he was a, he was a fierce opponent of the, of the modern slave trade too, whether he despaired that it would ever be abolished because he thought human beings' desire to dominate other people was so strong that slave owners would rather be poor and own their slaves than wealthy and not have slaves. Right? So it's interesting for everyone who thinks that Smith is just a theorist of rational self-interest. You know, he, he clearly thinks that it's not always rational self-interest, at least not in economic terms. Um, so he's deeply preoccupied with the problem of domination. But that doesn't make him a Republican, because Smith doesn't think that the solution here lies in participatory self-government for probably an aristocratic elite, probably off the back of a slave economy. Um, and it's not going to work anyway, because the age of small towns, self-governing city-states where the citizenry can assemble and rule itself is over, he thinks. Those play, those are kind of leftover items from, from history who have no chance in a world where Great Britain and France and Spain and the United Netherlands and what he can see coming, also a United States, um, are going to just be too militarily economically powerful for these tiny little city-states and they're going to overwhelm them. So 
That doesn't mean, though, that Smith thinks that, oh, well, then we can't have an interest in non-domination as a form of freedom. Smith thinks the way we secure non-domination is not through direct participation, and it's not through participating in the military and fighting off your enemies through being, being in the army. That's for the ancient world. That's not going to work anymore. Standing armies, gunpowder, mean that the rules of the military game have changed. Forget about that. What it's going to come down to is the innovation of the rule of law. The idea that laws apply to everybody the same, no matter how rich, how poor, whether they're in the House of Lords or working in a field in Devon, everybody, whether a merchant or a monopolist or an ordinary school teacher, they're all going to have the same security in their private possessions and their same rights in law. So if they're accused of a crime or someone commits a crime against them, they can go to court and get an impartial hearing from a third party judge who has no interest in the case and is going to decide the case based on its merits, not based on how much they can squeeze out of people through bribery and corruption. Now, Smith is aware that, that the rule of law is not always perfectly applied, and he's quite aware that, that you know, in practice it doesn't always work out so neatly. But his gambit is to say that if you can get the rule of law up and running to the point where it applies to everybody, and in particular it applies to the politicians who make the laws themselves, then you get what he calls modern freedom. But that modern freedom requires a modern state, and it requires the independence of a judiciary, which is fundamentally not under democratic control. So this is an anti-Republican view about how the laws get made and crucially how they get enforced. It's not ultimately up to the citizenry to enact and enforce the laws. In fact, that's probably the last thing you want, because a mob of your angry peers coming down on you like a ton of bricks is generally not a recipe for freedom. Anyone who's been subject to uh, an online hate campaign or you know, witnessed a cancellation, these are the kinds of things Smith cares about. Now, he, of course, he had no idea about social media and cancellation, but he was deeply worried about the capacity for people to be crushed under the weight of those kinds of arbitrary interferences. And his view was what we need there is the rule of law. But it's not a Republican view. It's a view that says effectively what we would now call the liberal state is how we moderns are going to secure our freedom and secure it for everybody, not just those privileged enough to own slaves. Um, and it's not related to liberty does not first appeal, also the rule of law does not first appear as a consequence of feudalism falling apart because some barons bought some trinkets. If I, I had my kind of, my Adam Smith 101, book three of the Wealth of Nations, feudalism disintegrates and liberty emerges uh, subsequently because barons got obsessed with luxury goods. And that's not quite right. There's an element of that, but that's, you have something different to say yeah. on uh, how the rule of law is established. So the, the old story about this is, it's not completely wrong, but it's a bit oversimplified. And that's that, that yeah, that in the in the feudal times, um, because Smith thinks that what most people who are rich and powerful do throughout most of human history is spend that money on retainers. Okay, so people who fight in their own private army, people who are dependent on them, right? People who have to pay them homage at court and 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 basically suck up them in order to to, to have a good standard of life, and then control everybody else to a sort of, a sort of pyramid scheme of. Uh, um, well, not a scheme, pyramid scheme, but a sort of downward pyramid of, of, of dependency and oppression. What happens in the sort of Middle Ages is that luxury production taking place in the Renaissance city-states gets funneled up into the Northern European countries, and the rich people in those countries start buying stupid 
status goods like diamond buckles or fancy pairs of shoes to show off to other rich people. And they stop paying their own private army. They stop paying their own retainers, which means that eventually they lose the military base that they had to resist the power of a king. So the nobles for thousands of years were basically in a situation of periodically paused internal warfare with, with whoever the local monarch was. But when they give up their ability to um, fight back um, and have an army because they'd rather spend it on inane status goods, that's when you get the emergence of early modern European absolutism, crushing of the barons, and the first sort of collapse of, the, of, of feudalism. And that story isn't wrong. Um, but Smith's story is that it actually starts earlier than that, because the story initially begins in the Italian city-states themselves, where they had to start a competitor where, where where the economic luxury was able to be generated from which eventually brought down the northern barons in the large countries like France and Germany and Britain had to begin in these city-states that were producing economic luxury goods in places like Italy and some parts of Switzerland. And that happened because initially the, the burghers or the, um, the, the middle classes, the sort of bourgeois merchants, made alliances with local sovereigns against the noble classes. And they were given to themselves the rights to rule themselves internally via their own, within their own cities. They were basically given by the king the right to create their own democratic, uh, well, maybe not democratic, but at least aristocratic set of rules. And because the, the, the kings and the nobles in these areas hated each other, the kings made common cause with the burgers, the, 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 the merchants, if you will, and gave them political protection so that they wouldn't be attacked. What this ended up doing in the long term is creating um, the model for the rule of law, which began in these small trading states because the people in those states wanted to have protection of their own private property because they were sick of being pillaged and, and subjugated by the local barons. But once that innovation of the rule of law took hold, it could be expanded outwards and it could become something that began to apply not just to the city itself, but to the country more generally. And it was because that idea of the rule of law and the protection of private property started to take hold that it became harder and harder for the barons to simply engage in mass pillage and, and, and uh, the resetting of economic development. So the story for Smith goes back much further than simply the, 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 the point about the feudal barons trading their political power for economic advancement. That's part of the story, but the story is that they did that in a context in which the rule of law was becoming established as the way in which politics and economics function. And that's what in turn enabled modern rule-based uh, rule government to emerge, rather than us being stuck with absolute monarchy, which would have been what happened if it had simply been that the barons destroyed themselves. There had to be an alternative framework um, emerging at the same time to control people. If uh, liberty or the rule of law was first established in uh, what in Italian city-states, trading city-states, where is it to be found in <laughs> when Smith is writing? Is it to be found anywhere uh, uh, while he was alive? So to almost paradoxically for Smith, liberty is now found not in the sort of either extinct or soon to be extinct small trading states of the uh, what were the advanced republics, but have now been overtaken by the large constitutional monarchies of Northern Europe. So he, he's quite clear that he thinks that liberty is most extensively found in Britain. And the reason for that is because of the common law. Uh, and again, this is a total accident of history, but Smith thinks that because of the practice of kings appointing judges to decide cases on their own merits, 
because the king basically couldn't be bothered to do it himself. Uh, but he didn't trust the judges. And he, didn't, he didn't trust his aristocracy, so he didn't make them the judges. So he drew the judges from the sort of lower classes of society, but he wanted to keep a very strict eye on them because he knew that judging is a, a historically a site where you can, you can be corrupt, you can ask people for bribes, you can render justice only for a price. And he didn't want that happening. So um, the, the, the British kings originally made the judges uh, report very, very, very precisely on the reasons they'd come to form their verdict. And what this actually evolved into is the common law, the idea that all judgments must be based on precedent and must be in keeping with the judgments that have been made before. And so what this did over time was created a system in Britain, which was the closest thing to perfection that had been developed anywhere, totally by accident, because it meant that judges and legislators were always checking whether the, any decision was in keeping with the established body of rules. And that eventually came to subsume not just criminal cases, but all law. And it ended up being that parliamentary law even had to make um, recourse to this, which meant that even prime ministers and kings ultimately were going to be held accountable by the law. So Britain had perfected this, uh, he thought, to the highest degree. And it was a total accident. No one set out to bring this about. But that amazing co-development of the common law, along with the feudal barons destroying their own power by giving it away um, through luxury, meant that a framework of the rule of law could emerge. But something analogous, he thinks, happened in other countries as well. So in France, for example, uh, although the monarch was still absolute, you know, he's writing just before the French Revolution, and the monarch was still kind of not um, uh, subjugated by the laws, the nonetheless, the French monarchy had understood that regular application of justice for everybody else was incredibly important and was both promoted political stability and economic prosperity, although that was sorely going to be put to the test just after Smith died. But up until that point, um, it looked like they tried to do. Now, they used the system inherited from Roman law and from canon law from the church, and they didn't have the common law. So Smith thought that the other European countries, not just France, but, but other countries that were similar, um, they weren't doing it quite as efficiently as Britain, but they had also managed to do it. And the idea here is that these, these are constitutional monarchies. They are not arbitrary despotisms. They are not, um, they're not systems in which people can simply do whatever they want if they have sufficient power and they can bribe the right people. Things have to be done according to set pro protocols and laws and will be judged by third parties. Of course, when he's writing, so he's publishing Wealth of Nations in 1776, the United States is still almost still part of Britain at that point. Declaration of Independence obviously comes in 1776 and Smith writes extensively in the Wealth of Nations about basically why the, the English or the British should, should just accept reality and let the Americans go. In fact, he says, if anything, they should shift the capital from London to Washington or New York, probably it would have been, because it's so obvious who the, who the major power is in this scenario is going to be. And uh, political power always follows the money. And so probably should just cut to the chase and let the Americans call the shots. Now, he knows that's never actually going to happen. But America was another country in which you could see that the application of the British common law would result in in what he would have thought of as modern liberty so it's it's something that's that's been established across much of the western world by that point he thinks i'm gonna have to, have to jump forward into chapters three and four i mean you know yeah. there's so much there's so much we've sort of covered but there's also so much that we could have been talking about in the chapters we've just gone over um let's move over i'll move on to the, the russo stuff uh I'll, I'll prompt you with the with the question as before. What's wrong with describing Adam Smith as an apologist for capitalism who rejects Rousseau's charge that commerce fundamentally compromises morality? What's wrong with thinking about Smith as responding to Rousseau and as an apologist for capitalism? 
so there's so much to, to go on here. And this alludes back to, to what we, to where we started the discussion with the predominant strain of Smith scholarship in the sort of last 20 or so years has been precisely to say that Smith is responding to Rousseau's charge in the second discourse, which is that capitalism or what people often willingly refer to as commercial society. And again, I have a bugbear there because it's not what Smith means by commercial society, but, but let's, let's call it consumerism, right? That can, that tends to be the label that captures the, the, the worry here, but consumerism is a system wherein people buy economic luxuries, not because it brings them any intrinsic benefit, but they do so because they're trying to approve, uh, trying to secure the approval of other peers. They're trying to show off in the gaze of their peers, what Smith, uh, Rousseau would call uh, satisfying their amor opera. And Rousseau's central charge in the second discourse is that conditions of commercial modernity have inflamed our amour propre, our need for other people to look at us and think well of us. And we're on this perpetual treadmill where we're desperate for more approval, but we're all in status competition with each other. So we're always doing each other down. So we'll never have enough. And this, this creates a situation of um, political repression because he thinks the state is basically just a, an organization for enforcing the private property rules that underpin this status competition. And the effect is that it it makes us all nasty, status-seeking competitors who aren't able to act on good moral terms with each other because we've actually lost the ability to do that, which we used to have back in a sort of uh, distant state of nature, but through the interaction of our, our amor propre with economic exchange and the advent of luxury, and then the state enforcing the rules of economic exchange, we've lost that and we've kind of fallen from grace and things are terrible. And that's the kind of Rousseau picture. And so a lot of people have suggested, well, Smith kind of agrees with Rousseau that um, property and exchange has this potentially damaging impact on our moral psychology, but, but it's not quite as bad as Rousseau thinks. And anyway, it's okay because on balance, this was better because um, the, the flip side of economic exchange was we all became more prosperous. So even though there's inequality and uh, our moral sentiments can be corrupted, as he does indeed write in the theory of moral sentiments by our obsession with worshiping the rich and the powerful, on balance, this is sort of like a price worth paying because it gives us um, uh, more prosperity and and uh, and controlled government, which isn't a, a simply a, a network of oppression, as Rousseau seems to think. So, you know, yes, commercial society has these pitfalls and it's morally corrupting, but, you know, we can sort of um, uh, apologize for that because of its overall benefits outweigh its costs. That's the kind of standard picture. And that's the picture that I'm pushing against. So the reason I'm pushing against this is, well, there's multiple aspects of this. One is that I simply don't think it's true that Rousseau laid down that challenge and Smith responded to it. And I won't go into too much detail here, but I think that challenge has already been laid down by Bernard Mandeville in the early 18th century, who I think Rousseau is fairly obviously plagiarizing at various points in the second discourse. And my colleague, Robin Douglas, who's, who's got a book coming out hopefully next year on Mandeville, shows this in a lot more detail, actually. Um, and so what that means is Smith had already read these arguments before he encountered Rousseau, because he'd read Mandeville when he was much younger, when he's first composing the theory of moral sentiments. So, so first, I don't think it's biographically true that he's responding to Rousseau. I think he already is, he knows what's wrong with that line of argument because he's read it in Mandeville. More importantly, I think Smith just doesn't accept the Rousseau line about what's happening to our psychologies in, term, in, in situations of market consumption. So the standard view is that Smith basically agrees with Rousseau that the vast majority of economic consumption is driven by vanity, by desire for other people to look at us. And I think this is simply false. <laughs> so this is, again, one of the polemical parts of the book. And I think it's based on a series of misreadings. And crucially, people need to go back to part four of the theory of moral sentiments, which is the, the part which is explicitly concerned with market um, activity, 
uh, it's called of utility. And there, I think we get a much different picture about what drives economic activity from Smith than what we find in Rousseau. And it's what I label the quirk of rationality, which is Smith's... <laughs> yeah, yes. yes, the iPods thing, right? And, and I think Smith, right, so I'll put my cards on the table. I think Smith is just right about this, right? So even though, even today, most it's people are not personal experience of you. <laughs> oh, it's very, it's, yeah, maybe I think it's right because it seems to capture me so well. But the idea here is that Smith asks us to consider, is it really true that most people consume stuff because they want to show off to other people? And I don't think it is true. And he doesn't think it's true either. Because what seems to do the work is our obsession with not utility, but the means of utility and not necessarily status, but the things that we think might bring us happiness if we simply possess them. So a good example here is, as you said, the iPods, right? So I'm talking to you on a MacBook Air. I'm getting an upgraded MacBook delivered tomorrow, paid for by work. Um, I've got an iMac uh, sitting on the desk and computer. I've got an iPhone. I've got an iPad. I don't have an Apple Watch because I do have to draw the line somewhere. But then the question <laughs> is, why do I own all these things, right? One of them would be sufficient for my needs, right? And even saying needs is putting it strongly, right? I, and but, but what it is, is this phenomenon where, where you become enchanted with, oh, if I just had, if I had another um, Apple product, they could talk to each other and I could share my files and all my photos would be in the same place. Or if I've had this new Mac that work will buy for me, then I can, I can do like photo editing and video editing. By the way, listeners, I don't do any video editing, but the idea that I could, if I wanted to, captures the mind, right? Now, what will happen tomorrow is when this new item is delivered is I'll play with it for about an hour and then it'll start being boring and it will become normal and 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 i have to get back on the treadmill so i'll start fantasizing about a new purchase so i've started looking at fishing kayaks right i've decided that the best way to catch sea bass in britain is he's hopeless from the shore i need a boat right it turns out fishing kayaks are extremely expensive and i and I, I don't need a fishing kayak right my, like, I, I know myself within a year i'm going to have a fishing kayak right what will happen i'll buy it and about 10 minutes later it'll go in the garage and it'll get used once a year right now this process to me captures more accurately why most of us consume things above necessity, why we're above, you know, shelter, clothing, food, you know, and, or, or clothing that's like, is maybe a slightly different example because sometimes we buy clothes more because of how we look to other people. So that's maybe a, a slightly different example. But, but, you know, think about car adverts, right? When car adverts are on the telly, it's all about like how, how smooth the ride is and all the features and the GPS and all that. And you don't need any of that to drive a car from to the supermarket and back. But this idea of it promoting your utility becomes more enchanting than anything that a car could ever actually give you in happiness. And so, so I think Smith is right about this. So I think Smith thinks fundamentally disagrees with Rousseau about what motivates the most, most of our consumption. But that means that the moral sting is really diffused from, from Rousseau's accusation. Because if what's driving large-scale economic consumption isn't nasty zero zero as uh, zero sum status competition but it's a kind of a delusion smith calls it a delusion a delusion that will be i know i'll finally be happy if i can just buy that new car well we all know it doesn't work like that he says that's what powers large-scale economic systems now it can go too far right he has this example of the, the poor man's son whom heaven in her anger has visited with ambition and this is the, the figure we're all kind of familiar with hopefully none of our listeners actually identify this way uh, but there's someone who who they always look at some whoever has more than them, right? So they look at a rich person. The rich person has a horse and they have to walk. The rich person sleeps in a fancy bed and they only have a, a normal bed. And they think, oh, if only I could be rich, then I would be happy. But of course they become rich and then they're not happy. And instead of realizing that they're on a treadmill and that 
this is never going to work. They keep getting more, they keep going more. And, and they consume themselves with trying to accumulate possessions. They neglect their friendships, then they get the family. And at the very end of their life, they realize they've wasted their life. And Smith thinks that that's a danger. And we're all like that a little bit. And we can all, we're all at risk of becoming like that excessively. And that's a wasted life. So he says, you know, you don't want to be like that. But on balance, most of us aren't that extreme. So Rousseau is wrong to think that everybody is this extreme case of a pathological status seeker for two reasons. Most people aren't that extreme. And most people aren't seeking status. They're seeking material comforts. And they're driven by this weird obsession with the means of utility rather than utility itself. But on balance, Smith thinks that's okay, because if we hadn't been like that, if we hadn't been laboring under this deception, we would never have developed beyond the most primitive conditions of, you know, maybe primitive tool use and language acquisition. And so it's because we're like this that we've got the enormous increase in wealth and, um, uh, and, and opulence that we actually see in developed societies, not just in the West, but you think, you know, China, Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, they're all the same in this regard. Um, and as a result, because even though it's true that large-scale economic development creates inequality, so to have people who are rich, you also need to have people who are poor, the people who are poor in modern conditions or in economically advanced conditions are so much better off than even the richest people in more, more economically um, undeveloped conditions, that that inequality is on balance tolerable, even though it has political dimensions, which we're going to talk about, Smith is worried about, it's not in itself necessarily objectionable. And it's not that ordinary people are being savaged by a constant status competition, which is doing them harm in the way that Rousseau thinks. So it's more tolerable. So for that reason, I think Smith just isn't, A, isn't responding to Rousseau directly, he's probably responding to Mandeville, and B, he doesn't think that the diagnosis of consumer capitalism as a sort of endless seeking of vanity is any way correct. He thinks that's just not what's going on. So you can be altogether more relaxed about economic consumption so long as you don't fall into the trap of being like the poor man's son can you clarify something for me which is possibly i've misunderstood um did i am i correct in uh, reading you as arguing that tms theory of moral sentiments 1759 uh, smith's first book is not a particularly political book that it's often treated as being a commentary on the individual in commercial society but it should be treated as a work, you know, as Nick Phillipson would have done, uh, a work of the science of human nature discussing the formation of moral sentiments in any society. Is that the quick way of reading you rightly? That, that, that is exactly my position. And again, this is a pushback against the recent trend of reading Smith as though he's primarily a moral apologist for something called commercial society, uh, which really mean, which is not what I think he actually means by commercial society, which is underdetermined fairly large placeholder which we need to know more about any specific example of but commercial society when people what they mean is consumer capitalism so rather than and people have tended to read the theory of moral sentiments as a moral defense of commercial society in that anachronistic understanding of commercial society and you're exactly right i think that's just a mistake the, the theory of moral sentiments i think is the greatest work of ethics ever written i'll put i stick my neck out there right i think it's better than the nicomachean ethics better than Kant's groundwork better even than hume's treatise right i think it's i think it is the number one partly because i agree with it and i'm a ethical <laughs> sentimentalist and metaphysical anti-realist in my own philosophical commitments it's, you know mr chris to my mill but i think it's a phenomenal work of moral philosophy, which has some implications for how to think about issues arising from inequality in commerce, but they're not supposed to be specifically directed at the society of his day. They are precisely about the human condition. 
And so my colleague, again, Robin Douglas, has actually written a paper where he takes up this this point more explicitly than I do in the book. And he's it's actually in an edited collection that I've edited and that's coming out next year. And Robin like really drives this point like through to its full conclusion. Um, so so it's sort of implicit in my book that that is my position, but but there will be a full defense of that view. Uh, and I've read it and it's very good. Um, and it's coming out hopefully next year. So readers can look forward to that too. <laughs> I just, that, that sort of leads to uh, the need for further clarification then. So you're arguing that Smith is more of a political theorist, political thinker than has previously been described, but not in this book, not in The Moral Sentiments, but in The Wealth of Nations. So you should separate, there's some distance between the two then, there's greater distance between the two than has been the case in most scholarship recently to try to bring them together. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I, so, so lurking in the background here, of course, is this thing, the Das Adam Smith problem, which is the idea that, you know, his, Smith wrote two books. One's about being a selfish bastard, and that's The Wealth of Nations. The other's about being an <laughs> altruistic, lovely, moral saint, and that's the moral sentence. How could he have written both books, right? Well, no one believes that version of the problem anymore because it's clear that they're, they're working at different levels of analysis. The, the theory of moral sentiments is about individual moral psychology. It's about sympathy. It's not the same thing as benevolence. And the wealth of nations is a systems level understanding of political economy and history. And that's often interested in the question of self-interest, which isn't the same thing as selfishness. Self-interest and sympathy are completely compatible in Smith's framework. There's no puzzle here about how he could write these two books. Nobody thinks that anymore. But what has been suggested is that... Um, Smith needs to be sort of rescued from the economist Smith, the idea of him being a theorist of markets, because the thought here is, well, if you theorize markets and markets lead to inequality and you think inequality is on balance, okay, how could you think that's morally acceptable? It, the, the default presumption is that what we would call capitalism and what people mean when they say commercial society and apply it to Smith, i.e. some kind of consumer-driven luxury economy, what, what they worry here is, well, how can that be moral, right? That, that, can't, that can't be a moral state of affairs because it leads to inequality and it's based on, on, on selfishness. Um, and what I've tried to push back on in this book is saying, well, Smith didn't share those presumptions. And insofar as he was thinking about what societies like his own had to deal with, he didn't primarily approach it through a, a moralized defense um, as located in the theory of moral sentiments. He primarily addressed these questions, not just through the wealth of nations, but in particular the lectures on jurisprudence, which we now have extensive student notes for, um, which we prefer we didn't until like, they sort of, uh, last, it's only in the last sort of 40 or 50 years with the, um, the publication of the Glasgow edition of the, of the lectures on jurisprudence that they become widely available to scholars. And that partly explains your earlier question of how come it's, how can people have been misled about some of this stuff is it's taken a long time for us to really get to grips with the lectures on jurisprudence uh, but yeah my, my claim is if you want to understand Smith's political thought it's no good going to his work of moral philosophy you need to go to his work of history and, and political economy that's where you'll find his political thought. Okay, well, building on that the final chapter argues that Smith is or was it tell me I'm correct in summarizing in the summary that Smith is not concerned so much with moral corruption but with political corruption. Again, in my head, Adam Smith 101, if I was, you know, as an undergraduate, if I was doing HPT in my first year, I might learn about the degenerative effects on human nature of working in a, in a division of labor where all I'm doing is putting this th this one thing from here to there repeatedly over and over. And that, that's a moral claim um, about, you know, the negative effects of the division of labor on me, maybe. Well, you, you know. um, but that's not quite right. It's, it's, he's more interested in something yeah. else. 
So Smith is definitely is interested in that, right? Um, he is interested in that and, and the degradation of ordinary people through the advent of, of the division of labor and what's going to come next with the industrial revolution. He can sort of tell that things are looking grim for the working poor, you know, being sent to a pin factory every day to spend 12 hours making pin shafts um, and then to, to scrape enough food together just about to be able to feed your family and then you know, repeat until you die you know, of, of preventable diseases in your early 30s, you know, this grim life. And he, he doesn't celebrate that. And he does himself describe this as a, as a form of corruption. And I sort of nitpick in the book and say he shouldn't really have because corruption refers to ethnically to a degradation from a healthy state to an unhealthy state. But, but putting that to aside, that hasn't been what most recent scholars have been predominantly worried about when it comes to moral corruption. It's been this idea that, that, um, that status seeking and consumption equals degradation of our ability to interact with each other in a morally healthy way. And that the conditions of commercial society for which read consumer capitalism is what people really mean there, uh, make it impossible to achieve that kind of healthy balance. And I think that that's not accurate. Um, so partly for the reasons I, I said a, a few moments ago, um, I think that Smith just thinks that that's not what happens to our psychologies in, in conditions of opulence and exchange. And insofar as human beings are liable to be obsessed with wealth and power we tend to defer too easily to the judgments of the rich we tend to give them what they want we tend to assume that because they're rich they must be clever and because they're rich they must have good judgment and because they're rich they must have the best interest of everyone at heart there are complex psychological reasons for this smith thinks we think it's almost certainly false and um, but if you, you know, flick if any of your re- uh, listeners would like to go to the, their closest newspaper and look at um, how we're expected to listen to what you know captains of industry have to say about tax policy uh smith would want to say well number one why do you think that captains of industry would have any special insight into tax policy they got rich selling hoovers or whatever but that's a different thing right so there's something weird about our psych- psychologies that makes us trying to defer to the rich and secondly you shouldn't trust these people one ounce right the danger here isn't that you necessarily you're going to flatter them too much that's been a problem throughout all human history the problem for us is that our modern powerful states and our rule of law and our complex economies are liable to be captured and exploited by the the so-called captains of industry the fat cats and what they will do is they will lie and manipulate and cheat and use every trick in the book they can to rig the system in their own favor at the expense of ordinary people that's the danger of corruption in modern politics for smith that's one of the the moments where you are very explicit about uh, what is a benefit to read smith now in terms of our own political moment, right? That, that, that yeah, this is something quite very insightful and we should uh, pay attention to what Smith has to say. Um, perhaps you could develop that thought a little bit further, but also, uh, again, can you clarify me possibly being a bit uh, slow on the uptake here? One of the issue, you talk about the, is it the divergence of wealth between the merchants and the politicians? Is the idea that Smith is worried about politicians not being rich enough <laughs> right so it's so, so so here we need to get get into some, some, some interesting moral psychology which he, he he's developing from david hume earlier and smith has a central idea and i think he's right about this which is that human beings tend to obey other people not out of any calculated sense of self-interest but a belief in the authority of that person right so one common source of this authority is age right we tend to do we tend to think that older people should be deferred to and obeyed and listened to right not in all cases but it's a default for us right wisdom is another one if we think people are clever or, or know something about a particular area and have particular expertise then we should you know, sort of be guided by them but these in large-scale politics smith thinks are simply inadequate um 
because uh, they're too inconstant, they're too nebulous, they're not obvious on, on the surface, and they can't do the work. So the one that's really important is wealth. Smith thinks it's just a baseline fact about human psychology, and I think he's probably right about this, that we tend to think that if somebody has wealth, then they have authority. And we tend to treat it as a proxy for their right to rule, basically. And this is all a function of our psychology. And he doesn't think this is rationally justified. He thinks that here philosophy and you know the author of our nature are, are, are at loggerheads, that to a philosopher, this is just crazy. But as a, to a sociologist, it's data, right? And he's acting as a sociologist here. And he wants to say, for most of human history, wealth and power tend to be very tightly aligned. Right? And that's not an accident. It's because the wealthy are the people who had political power and use their political power to dominate everyone else, extract their resources and keep their wealth, keep the wealth. Right. And so often wealth and power are synergized. And so political systems that operate like that tend to be stable. One big danger, though, is when wealth and power diverge. And his, his examples for this, and he uses these in some of his lectures, are if you look at what happened in Athens and Rome, what you see is the, emer the, the gr economic growth leads to the emergence of merchant classes. Merchant classes are traditionally not drawn from the aristocracy and they don't have political power, but they want political power, partly because they resent being excluded from it, partly because it will further their own interests, partly because they want to dominate other people, partly because they think they're entitled to it because they're rich. And what the new wealthy classes do is agitate for political power. And because they're wealthy, they can appeal to ordinary people and saying, hey, look, I'm rich. They don't put it this bluntly, but they, the, the way the psychology works is they're rich. They must have a point. They should probably know what to do. And so what happened in the ancient world is the conflict between the old aristocratic basis of political power and the new money which didn't have any institutional power but wanted it what ultimately happened is these these two factions of elites go to go to war with each other quite literally in some case of rome and they destroy the state and so the real danger for smith is that opulence is all well and good and more wealth and the tide lifting all boats is is, is great until you get a divergence between those who hold power and those who hold wealth and then you've got a potential powder keg situation and smith thinks that the story of modern politics is a complex interplay of how wealth and power was stabilized how the merchants and the mercantile elites of modern europe rose up but unlike the mercantile elites of the ancient world they were hemmed in by the rule of law that same thing that gives us our freedom also made the set made um, modern states more stable because it forced these people to play by the rules and it forced them to respect the political system and they said if they wanted to get anywhere and they wanted to keep hold of their own private property they had to keep this system it was in their interest to keep it the exception being when european states went into other countries which didn't where there wasn't already a rule of law or if there was they overthrew it and imposed their own domination and his great example there is what the west did to india and also to the native americans and it's not pretty um yeah, it's such a brilliant book. Um, as in, yeah, I suppose... I want yes, to The Wealth find... of Nations is a brilliant book. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose um, to sort of bring things to a close, begin to bring things to a close. I want to go back to, I've just I jotted this down and I, you know, I might think out the question as I'm talking and it may not work. On several occasions, as you've been talking through Smith, especially Smith's historical theory, you have emphasize the role of accidents and contingencies now one of the sort of versions of scottish enlightenment social theory is that they act as heuristics to help us explain the world they don't deal with specific examples but they give you a general sense about how the world works whereas the smith you're describing doesn't sound like 
he has the same explanatory potential for say the present day uh, our present day issues um yeah it does it why read smith now yeah uh, so, so it's a, yeah i totally take the point and part, partly that's what i wanted to say is that because smith is so grounded in the contingencies and re- realities of what actually happened in history i don't think he himself takes himself to have much explanatory power uh, in terms of the future i think he can he thinks we can learn to understand how we got to where we are but the future is beyond our foresight but what we can at the very least do is take on board the realities of history and think through very carefully about what's likely to happen if we make certain kinds of changes so if we decide to ditch the rule of law because it's inexpedient and we'd like to secure some short-term economic growth well the light wrong run consequences of that will probably be much much worse than anybody wants them to be because they will probably issue in in the domination of the of the many by the few and the collapse of the freedom that we've we've you know achieved by accident so you want to be very very careful about that on the other hand smith is absolutely clear that no state can stand still and expect to survive you have to change with the times um and that ultimately requires careful political judgment which he also thinks is extremely unlikely to be found in anybody who is successful in politics because it kind of rewards short-termism opportunism and doing whatever the merchants want because they hold the purse strings so on the one hand there's a sense in which i i don't think we can go to smith for lessons to just plunder for the contemporary application but there is a certain disposition that we can learn from him and it's the one you mentioned before actually it's this idea that that you've really got to be careful about who benefits from any proposed reform if the merchant elites are coming to you saying oh what you really need to do here is give me a monopoly on this good and lower taxes and that'll be in the interests of of the nation as a whole you've always got to ask well hang on who's benefiting from this you know, who's going who's actually going to um to um uh, to, to to come out on top if we make this change and the second important thing is if you look at how much of history is unplanned unintended and operates through the most unexpected mechanisms what you should expect in turn is that any plans that you yourself have for imposing on the complexities of a modern society are very very unlikely to survive contact with reality now that doesn't mean you don't try and change things for the better but it does mean that you approach things with a modest sense of what can actually be done a genuine respect for the independence and autonomy of other human agents who have their own plans and their own ideas and aren't necessarily going to do what you want and that you are skeptical about any group that wants power including the people who claim they want power to diffuse it and simply let the market rule because in smith's view and this is again where i I am pushing back against hear more of a sort of traditional right-wing reading of Smith. Smith thinks that the last people who you should let call the shots are the merchants and the monopolists, because you'll never get a free market if the state simply withdraws. What you'll actually get is exploitation and market rigging and domination. And so the state needs to strike a very difficult balance between providing the conditions in which markets can function which for Smith meant kicking out all the monopolists and all the people who bribed their way into positions of power and were preventing competition. Um, It means controlling the fat cats, not bowing to them. But at the same time, the state itself needs to avoid the temptation of getting too involved and becoming a worse version of the merchants itself. There's no simple political lesson in that. There's no simple left or right Smith. And one thing I've tried to do in this book is 
present a vision of Smith political thought without politicizing Smith. I don't know how much I've succeeded in doing that, but it's more the realistic disposition that I admire of his. Someone once asked me, Paul, you're a realist in political theory. So, you know, according to you, who should we do political theory like? And actually, I just started writing the book and I think my answer is Adam Smith. We should do political theory like Adam Smith realistic psychologies, careful attention to history, serious interest in political economy, and a deep skepticism about the human ability to overcome domination. But therefore, we should really cherish those times and places where we have managed to overcome domination, because it's not the norm, it's the exception. Well, that's an excellent moment, uh, message to end on. Uh, I suppose, always polite to ask, what are you working on now? What's coming up in the future? I've been uh, working on a non-historical project on the idea of basic equality. Um, why are we all fundamentally equal in some sort of non-negotiable sense, regardless of race, religion, gender, sexuality, anything else, you know, height, physical ability, intellectual powers, whatever. There's a sense in which we in this society now all take one. Most people, at least all decent people in society now, uh, agree that in some sense we're all fundamentally equal. And then the puzzle is why? Because any metric you point to, you will find in the human set vast inequality, not equality. And it's been a real puzzle for political philosophers for the last sort of 20 or so years since Jeremy Warden really put this on the table. It's like, we need to explain this premise. Why do we believe this? And so far, no one has really managed to make much headway. And I've sort of just about finishing a manuscript where I think, I, I think I've got something to say on that. Um, but it involves doing a lot of psychology. I've gone and read the social psychologists and the, and the behavioral psychologists, some history um, and, and much less philosophy that is normally used in this area. And you know, I, I like to think that it's uh, very much in the spirit of Adam Smith, actually. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I've been doing recently. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to reading that when that comes out. Okay. Uh, Dr. Paul Sagar, thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks very much for having me, Robin. 